Greetings, welcome, bienvenidos, hola, aloha, ni hao, namaste, konnichiwa, bonjour, bonjourno, sawadikarup, guten tak, jiao, wee, viva, cat, bang, half a day, jai janendra, salam, shalom, peace, now, go vegan, peace how, go vegan, and even Daisy agrees, from, right, Daisy, go vegan, for peace, right, yeah, peace how, go vegan. Um, freedom of speech, freedom of bark. Um, from the left coast of the genetic... Oh, I said I was going to change that, didn't I? Um, since the left has become... Has gone far right. <laughs> I thought I was on the left. All right, well, we'll just change it to the west coast. I have to try to remember that, though, okay? So it's... Uh, used, to, used to identify with the left. I don't, I don't know. Um, from the west coast of the genetically mutated McNugget Pharmaceutical Vivisection Prison Killitary Industrial Corporation in the cheese-covered post-constitutional bankster bankrupt corruptocracy mocracy criminocracy unchallenged by media, mediocrity uh, food born in the NSA NR, uh, NRA USA home of Uncle Sam Manella where they sure do eat a lot of Dead animal body parts and the Wall Street-backed corporate diet of death, disease, and destruction is shoved down your throat. This is Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. And uh, we took off uh, yesterday, President's Day, uh, because, uh, well, President's Day really is is no day for the truth. So, uh, really, you know, on President's Day, I think truth should be take a holiday <laughs> it's really i think i think it's it should be more considered a day to honor the great american virtue of lying yes i uh, i think really it should be commemorated as as a day of lying if i had done the show yesterday i probably would have said something like oh eat eat more eat more meat eat more dairy and fish and eggs because they're really good for you um and the they're good for the environment also um and didn't god put animals on the planet just for us to eat anyway right you know i mean that's what the humane society of the united states said it was quoted in the washington post saying god put animals on earth for us to eat and uh (laughs) that's Great if you're the number one animal protection organization right there. Oh, looks like it'll be rough for the animals. Uh, but, you know, that's an organization that has uh, really perfected the art of lying to its uh, greatest patriotic heights. And, uh, you know, for its state of the art in lying, uh, HSUS is rewarded with about, what, $130 million dollars? per year in donations huh what's what's that that's that's what probably a couple of speeches by hillary clinton for goldman sachs um so hey kids forget about telling the truth if you really want to make it in the usa you want to get ahead right so perfect the art of lying practice in front of the mirror now no giggling you know no no looking from side to side like somebody's catching you in a lie huh? no nope. practice in front of the mirror yeah you know that is if you want to 
get ahead if if you want to be a successful politician or maybe a, a news anchor on MSNBC and NBC. BS, um, where we do see BS. Um, after all, Brian, Brian Williams is working, isn't he? Um, actually, all of those people on those networks are working. So there's proof. There's proof, right? So or if you want to be a writer for the New York Times or the Washington Post. huh? So uh, what was America's first lie? Uh, well, celebrated the day yesterday, George Washington said, I cannot tell a lie. So uh, that is a a pretty good indication that, uh, well, that's a a politician lying right there. If George Washington is saying, I cannot tell a lie, well, I think the reverse when I hear a politician. So anyway, um, another indication that a a politician is lying, well, of course, is... uh, that he or she is uh, moving his or her lips. Uh, yeah, that's another indication. Um, I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down the cherry tree. Well, huh? What? Let let the deforestation begin right there, George. Huh? Right. Let's uh, minimize what's happening here. Sure, chop chop one cherry tree down before you know it. The whole rainforest is going. Uh, by the way, uh, to eat, uh, you know, meat, you know, deforestation caused by consuming meat and dairy, of course, um, and uh, the spread of GMO feed because of the consumption of uh, meat and dairy. Um, so anyway, George Washington, I don't know, was was that, you know, I cannot tell a lie, I chopped down the cherry tree was uh, was honest george covering up for for some wall street uh you know weapons manufacturer or uh maybe uh, was it georgia pacific or boeing 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 might have needed uh the wood in uh well i guess boeing was probably just doing boats back then right um I don't know. So, you know, before it was President's Day, you know, like yesterday, um, we used to have two holidays in February. So we've been cheated, actually. Uh, one was for Washington's birthday and one uh, for Lincoln's birthday. Now, um, whoops. Ah, OK. When, when you hear me uh, scream uh, ah in the middle, it's usually I'm trying to do something technical and I've messed it up and I don't know if there's any hope for the future. But anyway, so um, what was it? We, we It was uh, used to be, I think, February 22nd that we uh, we had the holiday for Washington's birthday and I think it was February 16th uh, for Lincoln. Um, so Anyway, apparently, uh, for Lincoln, his his uh, nickname apparently is is a lie itself. You know, we never know in history, right? We 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 just don't know the truth about anything. So, uh, honest Abe, right? We that's what we hear, honest Abe, huh? So, um, well, apparently, those who really know history and appreciate Lincoln for who he was know that his Strategic principled lying represented the pinnacle of presidential 
leadership uh, that, uh, well, uh, this respect for lying, I, I think, could, could only be expressed. Uh, well, here, let's, uh, let's, let's play the clip. This question involves WikiLeaks release of purported excerpts of Secretary Clinton's paid speeches, which she has refused to release, and one line in particular in which you, Secretary Clinton, purportedly say you need both a public and private position on certain issues. So, two from Virginia asks, is it okay for politicians to be two-faced? Is it acceptable for a politician to have a private stance on issues? Secretary Clinton, well, your two minutes. Right. As, as I recall, that was uh, something I said about Abraham Lincoln uh, after having seen the wonderful Steven Spielberg movie called Lincoln. It was a master class watching President Lincoln get the Congress to approve the 13th Amendment. It was principled and it was strategic. And I was making the point that it is hard sometimes to get the Congress to do what you want to do, and you have to keep working at it. And yes, President Lincoln was trying to convince some people, he used some arguments, convincing other people, he used other arguments. That uh, was a great, uh, uh, I thought, a great uh, display of presidential leadership. But you know, let's talk about what's really going on here, Martha, because our intelligence community just came out and said in the last few days that the Kremlin, meaning Putin and the Russian government, are directing the attacks, the hacking on American accounts to influence our election. And WikiLeaks is part of that, as are other sites where the Russians hack information. We don't even know if it's accurate information. And then they put it out. We have never in the history of our country been in a situation where an adversary, a foreign power, is working so hard to influence the outcome of the election. And believe me, they're not doing it to get me elected. They're doing it to try to influence the election for Donald Trump. Now, maybe because he has praised Putin, maybe because he says he agrees with a lot of what Putin wants to do, maybe because he wants to do business in Moscow, I don't know the reasons, but we deserve answers, and we should demand that Donald release all of his tax returns so that people can see what are the entanglements and the financial and relationships we're going to get to that, later. that he has Secretary with Clinton, and you're other out of time. foreign powers. Well, I think I should Mr. respond Trump. because it's so ridiculous. Look, now she's blaming, she got caught in a total lie. Her papers went out to all her friends at the banks, Goldman Sachs, and everybody else. And she said things, WikiLeaks, that just came out. And she lied. Now she's blaming the lie on the late, great Abraham Lincoln. That's one that I have. Okay, Honest Abe. Honest Abe never lied. That's the good thing. That's the big difference between Abraham Lincoln and you. <laughs> uh, who said Hillary wasn't qualified to be president there, huh? There you go. Um, I must say, that was my favorite... Good evening. Uh, I'm Martha Raddatz from ABC Martha. News. And I'm Anderson Cooper from CNN. Sure we want to welcome uh, you to Washington University in St. Louis no more for fake the second news. presidential debate between oh. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, oh, fake sponsored by the... Ah. Okay. There, there was my ah again. Uh, it's a technical term.
So, okay. So uh, there you have it. Okay. Uh, not only is Hillary expressing appreciation for true American values in her tribute to lying, honest Abe, but uh, then she seems to follow it up with uh, a demonstration of her own prowess. I must say that was my favorite uh, moment of this fun election season. Uh, I, whenever I'm feeling low, it's it's like, well, I either uh, watch an what, what do I do with it? It's like my fi- favorite episode of I Love Lucy. I guess that's what it was like. Just anyway. Um, so, in fact, uh, that was uh, pretty much a, a, a workshop uh, in uh, state-of-the-art uh, political lying. Um, I, I think we're supposed to say not truth-telling, you know, Um so, but anyway, that, that, that was a workshop on the subject. In fact, uh, when you are you, yourself, when you're practicing, now that you know what you have to do to get ahead in America, so when you yourself are practicing in front of the mirror, as you, um, you know, perfect your ability to lie effectively and persuasively, um, so in front of that mirror, just repeatedly, just blame Russia for everything. Every, every problem you have in your life, every problem your family, every problem in the country, the world, every, everyone's problems uh, in front of that mirror. You just uh, do that and uh, just blame Russia for everything. If you if you can do that, let's see. No, not now. Um, would all radio hosts please turn their cell phones down? Anyway, um, so anyway. When you can, um, yeah, when, when, when you can get in front of your mirror and just you know, talk and blame everything on Russia, when you can do that without bursting into laughter, uh, well, then um, you can run for office, run for office as a Democrat. Uh, the Democrat Party needs new recruits. Uh, apparently, people are running, but away from it. Um, I saw... Um, I saw it said 14 million Democrats have left the party since this election. That's according to the former chief numbers cruncher for the Bernie Sanders campaign, who presented those figures in an interview on the Sane Progressive YouTube channel, uh, which is uh, one that I appreciate. Um, so uh, apparently he's trying to organize a people's party. Um, much like those jokers at the Young Turks who are uh, soliciting donations for uh, their, uh, I don't know, what they call Justice Democrats. Uh, yes, the Young Turks whose founder, Cenk Yogar, uh, professes that uh, bacon is God's gift. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's Cenk there, uh, you know. Yeah, that's it's God's gift of cancer, Jenk. Huh? Um. Anyway, that's the brilliant leader of a progressive Democrat movement, right there. Uh, bacon is God's gift. I probably won't be too uh, you know, too enthusiastic about that movement. Uh, and here, what here we are, right? That these the young Turks, the most uh, very. Uh, you know, very successful, a big audience, huge audience, supposedly 
I don't know what left is anymore, left, progressive, whatever. Um, and uh, what do we get? We get bacon is God's gift, which to me says, well, don't you just love human privilege? Huh? We're against oppression. We're against you know, everything wrong in the world. Uh, so bring on the bacon. There's, there's human privilege right there. Human supremacy at its uh, finest. Speciesism. Um, yeah, we're, we're so progressive. We're so progressive, aren't we? Uh, I know. We, yeah, we're, we're really so progressive that uh, we use a recycled paper napkin when we dab the blood of uh, murder victims uh, running down our chin. Yeah. Dripping off our sandwich. Um, Anyway, so I don't think we're uh, going to achieve any sort of progressive political agenda uh, you know, by, uh, with, with faith in politicians or uh, legislation, for that matter. And certainly animals are left out of the equation, uh, well, including human animals, when you come right down to uh, those uh, fraudulent electronic voting machines, which cannot be trusted because they can easily be manipulated, uh, not just by Russians, not just by Russians, who didn't manipulate any of them in this past election. Uh, but uh, I know that's hard to believe based on what we just heard from Hillary there in her tribute to uh, lying on his tape. Um, so, but I mean, in terms of uh, legislation, huh? really? Um hasn't worked for the animals. Uh, all that time and energy wasted on working on things like a foie, bas, a, a foie gras ban um, or on uh, Proposition 2 in California. You know, legislation for animals pretty much goes ignored, unenforced, and overturned. Um, so the progressive agenda and the animals agenda really do meet at veganism. Uh, you know, we hear uh, the sane progressive talking about how you know, we have to have a conversation and meet and discuss and, you know, figure out our visions for, for the world that we really want and need. And it uh, turns out to be a vegan world. It, it, we will come to that conclusion if we ever get together uh, at all. So, I mean, for all reasons, that vegan world is so necessary. Um, and I see, you know, this week, with good cause, that uh, people are rightfully upset with approval of the Keystone XL pipeline. So, yeah, got to hate those pipelines, right? We, we, we hate those pipelines. Um, we were all very upset about uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, right? And, uh, you know, it sure would have been nice to have... Uh, some, some, you know, from the People's Party, some representation up there um, in the, you know, with the Dakota pipeline. It would have been great if, if Hillary would have been up there or uh, Nancy Pelosi or, or uh, up Chuck Schumer uh, or Obama. That would have been nice to show, the, show support for the Native peoples there um, <laughs> if, if there sincerely were support for them but ah, it was too cold to be sprayed with water cannon huh so that yeah couldn't, couldn't have the democrats go up there um and uh you know with with all that 
furor uh, going on with the Dakota pipeline, right at that same time, do, do you realize that Obama was busy approving the Trans-Pecos pipeline, uh, which is uh, 1.6 billion cubic feet of natural gas daily moving through that pipeline? Um, who can imagine 1.6 billion cubic feet? Seems like a lot of gas, which seems like some of it's going to spill at some point. I mean, 1.6 billion cubic feet passing through the uh, Trans-Pecos pipeline on a daily basis. I can't even imagine that, but I, I'm really good at, not, not good at uh, picturing acreage or uh, cubic anything, really. Um Oh, and Obama also was approving. Uh, oh, and the, so you have the Trans-Pecos pipeline, uh, which will uh, transfer West Texas uh, gas uh, from uh, West Texas to Mexico uh, under the Rio Grande, by the way. So uh, that's uh, that'll be something uh, if uh, there's a leak into the Rio Grande. Um and Obama also approved the Comanche Trail Pipeline, also uh, gas going through Texas on its way to Mexico. Um, and that's from fracking Obama, huh? whose uh, administration really has fracked up the world. When you come right down to it, uh, Hillary traveled the globe as the fracking U.S. ambassador of fracking. Uh, she visited 80 countries uh, trying to uh, get them all fracked, all fracked up. Um, we have the coast of California, all fracked up. Um, we had Obama approving fifteen hundred permits for drilling in the Gulf. So what's a little uh, Keystone Pipeline? Also, oh, uh, so so in uh, in the Financial Post uh, in its energy section. Uh, there's an article there. It says, America has built the equivalent of 10 Keystone pipelines since 2010, and nobody said anything. Uh, that was the headline, by the way. Uh, I didn't say, and nobody said anything. This article said, and nobody said anything. And uh, uh, Yadullah Hussain wrote in um, Financial Post, while TransCanada Corporation has been cooling its heels on its Keystone XL proposal for the past six years. Now, of course, it's uh, just, just been approved by the uh, Trump administration. Um, the oil pipeline business has been booming in the United States. Uh, crude oil pipeline mileage rose 9.1% last year. Uh, last year alone to reach 66,649 miles. Uh, do, do we have, do we have that, do we have that kind of, of cubic feet here in America, in the U.S. to, to have 66,649 miles of uh, uh, oil pipeline? But there won't be a leak. No, no, it's all, everything's safe. Uh, 66,649 miles of pipeline, according to data from the Washington, D.C.-based Association of Oil Pipelines, AOPL. I guess they would be the people to know, huh? So also uh, it was said between 2009 and 2013, 
the Obama years. More than 8,000 miles of oil transmission pipelines have been built in the past five years in the U.S., AOPL spokesperson John Studi said, compared to the 875 miles TransCanada wants to lay the um, to, to, to lay in the states of Montana, South Dakota, and Nebraska for its 830,000 uh, barrel per day project. Uh, by last year, the U.S. had built 12,000 miles of pipe since 2010. Is that uh, amazing or what? We're distracted. What do we know, really? You know, again, what do we know? Um, we get distracted by, uh, we just get distracted, don't we? Okay, and then there was this other article, uh, which I believe I discussed months ago, but now that the XL pipeline is relevant again, well, now that now that it's relevant again, we go to the article um, with the headline, The Increasing Irrelevance of the Keystone XL uh, Debate. And Robert Rapier wrote in the uh, in Energy Trends Insider, um, which uh, I, I read that every morning with uh, with coffee, don't you? I mean, really, Energy Trends Insider. So, in this article, uh, Robert Rapier writes. Uh, he says, uh, "Let's first use a bit of science and data to see." What the numbers imply about the significance of Keystone XL, even for a worst-case scenario. Here's a three-step exercise that anyone can do to estimate the impact based on specific sets of assumptions. Number one, state your assumption on how much oil that you believe Keystone XL will facilitate being burned that would not be burned otherwise. You can make that number as high as you like, but state your reason for choosing the number. Number two, calculate the expected global temperature impact that would rise from your number. Number three, finally, calculate the length of time it would take to burn the amount of oil you uh, chose in your first step, how much would the global temperature be expected to have changed uh, 50 years from now in your scenario? Um, so uh, it says uh, information cited below. Well, okay, anyway. So he goes on here. Uh, for me, the calculations look like this. For step one, the pipeline itself would transport 830,000 barrels per day, a maximum volume. I would certainly expect this volume to displace some other oil from the market uh, such that the entire 830,000 barrels per day is not a net addition to the global oil market. However, the climate impact of even the total 830,000 barrels per day is trivial. Uh, it is less than one ten-thousandth of a uh, degree Celsius per year. Uh, this contribution wouldn't even be measurable. It would merely be noise in the global temperature measurement. So uh, that clear, and I'm quoting here, by the way, I'm quoting Robert Rapier. Uh, from Energy Trends Insider. 
So that clearly wouldn't get anyone excited. Therefore, um, one has to begin uh, extrapolating. What if the pipeline uh, were the catalyst for extracting the entire uh, Athabasca? Athabasca? Have that right? I should have checked pronunciation before going on air. I meant to, um, but I'm I'm busy, you know, busy uh, converting music for Radio Bobby. I'll mention that a little bit. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so um, what if the uh, the pipeline were uh, the catalyst for extracting the entire Athabasca oil sands reserve in Alberta? Well. Uh, that's still not much to get excited about. For step two, I refer to a 2012 paper by Neil Swert and Andrew Weaver from the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences, University of Victoria, published in uh, Nature Climate Change. The reserve itself, uh, that is the part that is economically viable to extract, is 170 billion barrels if one of those barrels should happen to fall. Um, using standard climate models, the uh, researchers calculated that burning uh, the proven reserve would lead to a global temperature increase of uh, 0.02 uh, Celsius to 0.05 Celsius. Uh, that is between one fiftieth and one twentieth of a degree Celsius. Not only is this still only noise in the global temperature measurement data, but now the amount of time it would take uh, to burn through the reserve becomes relevant, which is step three. But before we calculate the time to burn through the reserve, let's look at the worst possible case that uh, I frequently see pipeline opponents cite uh, with no uh, caveats attached to it. What would be the temperature impact if the entire 1.8 trillion bar barrels of oil in place could be burned? Uh, this is a ridiculous assumption for several reasons, but let's work through the case anyway. The researchers in the previously cited paper in Nature Climate Change calculated that burning the entire 1.8 trillion barrels of oil in place uh, could raise global temperatures by 0.24 to 0.50 Celsius. Uh, guess which number Keystone XL opponents like to cite? Uh, 0.5 degrees Celsius, the high end of the worst case, uh, most unrealistic scenario. It's technically impossible to burn through all the oil in place. Besides the fact that it's ridiculous to associate the Keystone XL pipeline with burning all the oil in place in the uh, Athabasca uh once we work through step three, even this worst case falls apart. Always overlooked in this debate is the length of time it would take to burn through the reserve or the resource. The fact that uh, there is a limit to how fast oil can be ex extracted. The Canadian oil industry has been growing, but at the current production rate of 1.8 million barrels per day of oil sands uh, production, uh, that would take 259 years to burn through the reserve 
and 2,740 years to burn through the resource. So anyway, I uh, thought I would just uh, just mention that uh, as we uh, look at uh, the Keystone XL uh, pipeline, uh, apparently having an irrelevant effect on climate change. And yet the world's top climate specialists tell us that animal agriculture is the number one cause of climate change, responsible for at least 51% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I am quoting uh, climate specialists, ecologists Robert Goodland and Jeffrey Anhang uh, at the World Bank. Uh, and they are the same ones to tell us that the only solution for climate change is a population shift. 50 to 85% of those currently consuming so-called livestock products have to go vegan by 2020. Now, we are, uh, we're told we're at tipping points. We're at the tipping points now. But uh, I suppose what we will we'll do is we'll blame the Keystone uh, XL pipeline uh, for our climate change problems, right? We, we, won't, uh, we won't take responsibility and go vegan. We'll just point fingers, point fingers at the pipeline. Anyhow, this is Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com. Uh, we're usually live Mondays, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific. Um, Today is apparently Tuesday. All right. Uh, and our programs are archived at goveganradio.com, where you can support our program with the tax deductible donation, which we would greatly appreciate. Uh, we're uh, broadcasting now for 16 years and we are listener supported. So it would be great if you could help us out. Go to goveganradio.com, find that donate button, make a tax deductible donation.
It's Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com. On Twitter, at Go Vegan Radio. Facebook, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. And there are uh, two Bob Linden pages on Facebook. Uh, all of this just to make sure that everything I do is uh, inefficient. Um, basically, I've been preoccupied lately with launching Radio Bobby, an online music radio station, uh, that will sound like no other music radio station that you have ever heard in your life. And uh, you may even like it. I don't know. Uh, I'm hoping you love it. Um, so lately, I've been uh, really spending just about every minute assembling the music library for Radio Bobby, which means uh, you know that I've been uh, converting just tons of songs to the MP3 format. Uh, I've become uh, technically adept at that very fast, <laughs> uh, really, and uh, probably should apologize for not being as involved with my uh, socialist network people on Facebook and and uh, Twitter and uh, you know I I uh, I just I just get into doing this and I, I don't know it's, uh, it's 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 like I'm an obsessive workaholic, you know? So don't mistake the obsessive workaholic for laziness. Uh, you know, once I start converting the music, I can't stop. I mean, it goes all into the middle of the night, you know? So uh, so to uh, kind of balance that off, I'm kind of an obsessive procrastinator because, you know, I don't, I don't really want to start anything. Once I start it, I can't stop. So I'm better off not starting. Uh, but, I started on Radio Bobby. There's no stopping, and I really want to get this together. And you know, we're we're uh, saying we're, we're looking, we're hoping March fourth will be the launch date. And I'll stay up all night after today's program, uh, working on it. Also, um, oh, I I did uh, repost my video on YouTube uh, where I was interviewed uh, by uh, Plant Based News. Ironically. Ironically, I, I talk about how, <laughs> how how upsetting that vague, meaningless term plant-based is to me. And it turns out I get interviewed by Plant-Based News and uh, the uh, video. Um, it's, it's kind of low-key viral for me. I mean, uh, many thousands of people have uh, watched it, I think mainly because they want to see Daisy. Um and if you uh, search for everything wrong with animal rights on YouTube, there we are in double vision. Um, so many thousands of views on that. Um, I, I was just alerted a few days ago uh, that there are hundreds of comments on, on YouTube about the video also. Okay, we continue on Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com. Not sure what just happened there. I don't know how much uh, you heard of what I was saying or if uh, just Daisy was listening to me. I don't know. I was talking uh, about uh, I've been spending all my time converting music to MP3. Uh, I did mention that I reposted my... Um, and again, I don't know when the mic got cut off there and the music came on. Um, 
I did repost that video, um, the interview with plant-based news has gone somewhat viral, at least viral for me. If I have uh, thousands of people uh, seeing it, and um, also uh, there were hundreds of comments, as I mentioned. Uh, so uh, the other day I did uh, jump on to, uh, made responded to a couple of the comments, but I really think it would have been uh, more proper since uh, I don't know, most of the people seem to be in the UK. It would have been more proper for me to do uh, a proper thank you uh, there in the comment section, which I'll try to do uh, after uh, we're done with the program today. Um, hopefully I don't uh, get myself caught in... Uh, like going directly to converting songs to MP3 for Radio Bobby, the online music radio station that I hope we will launch on March 4th. Um, and uh, I hope you love the music there. And uh, but also, what's great is uh, any commercials that you hear will not be will not be sounding like a typical radio station. None of those slashed food restaurants, you know. Nothing, uh, you know, no no commercials for McDevils and Murder King, Jack the Ripper in a Box, uh, Up Chuck E. Cheese, Skin and Snout. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, so we're we're looking about do, looking at uh, launching that on March fourth. Uh, regarding the comments on the YouTube video, uh, which you can find by searching for "Everything Wrong with Animal Rights," um, I see that. Uh, Oh, it seems like people were saying they, you know, looks like 95% of the people agree with me and they, they actually like me, which is so unusual. I think I will be moving to the UK. People, people are writing that they want to be my neighbor and they want, you know, they want to adopt me. Okay. Um, so uh, how unusual people actually liking me, I guess I. Maybe I should be looking into moving to the UK. I'm, I'm popular. Obviously, now I'm popular there with this video. And uh, from what I understand, uh, if I ever go to Mongolia, I will be uh, mobbed there too. So I, I don't know if I can walk around uh, Mongolia without security. So anyway, uh, really, I was <laughs> out to dinner once with somebody who happened, you know, is from Mongolia and called her mother there said you'll never know who who's out to dinner with us here tonight so uh there you go i'm big in mongolia and now the uk um so um in re you know, so there were comments uh, in response to the video there um and most seem to agree with me those were the people who, you know, are right. Those those were the good people. And then there were other people who didn't necessarily agree with me. Oops. What happened there? The music came back. I don't want it. What are those Russian hackers doing to the show today? I'm in front of the mirror now practicing, as I mentioned in the open of the show. Uh, practicing blaming everything on Russia. Um, and if anything else goes wrong today, uh, let me uh, pre-blame. Uh, let me blame in advance. Everything that goes wrong uh, today on the show uh, is uh, 
we blame on Russia. And really, anything that I say that offends you, uh, apparently uh, Russia is, uh, you know, I'm under mind control. So, so anyway, as I said, uh, you know, a lot of agreement with what I said on the video there on YouTube. But, uh, you know, uh, some exceptions, uh, you know, one is about my claim that uh, going vegan is the only solution to climate change. Uh, which I explained earlier, uh, it's not my solution. I just quote the people recognized as the world's top climate specialists. So, um, and again, anybody who wants to dispute that claim, uh, let me see your resume. Uh, let me, are you an ecologist? Uh, or are you, do you just play one on TV? Or, okay, and then number two, what was... Um, in disputed times uh, was uh, my support for supporting vegan restaurants and businesses uh, and uh, foregoing the vegan options offered by non-vegan companies such as uh, vegan flavors from Ben and Jerry's. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe a bunch of people in the UK there are... Uh, Maybe they like to go to Ben and Jerry's, but um, I don't. Um, of course, you know, and, and we discussed this on the program in the past, and uh, Pro Professor Francione has mentioned how he feels that all money is dirty, probably is the case. All money, all of our money, well, all money, every dollar we have is kind of dirty if you consider it's generated by the Federal Reserve, a private corporation that, you know, we, we get our dollars. The government gets a dollar from the Federal Reserve, and then we owe the Federal Reserve that dollar back with interest on it. So uh, there's no getting out from under a national debt because we're in debt from the start there, um, which, uh, you know, makes me feel good about you know, my chances of uh, getting out of debt, too. So I can relate. Um, anyway, so people were saying, no, 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 we should uh, we, we should patronize a place like Ben and Jerry's and buy the vegan flavors and maybe they'll become popular. And I don't know, or maybe people going there who get their, uh, you know, their their uh, pus filled uh, bovine uh, sec frozen secretions uh, will uh, choose to get a vegan option. You know, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, also, people, well, for me, I, I don't want to be another uh, revenue source for uh, Ben and Jerry's if I can av avoid it at all. Can't, ah. Okay, it looks like... Uh, we're back on. It looks like the mic is hot. And uh, again, our technical problems uh, being caused by, uh, by Russia. Apparently, uh, Vladimir Putin is a fan of Ben and Jerry's. I'm telling people I wouldn't go to Ben and Jerry's, even though it has some vegan flavors. I don't suddenly, suddenly I'm a patron of the you know, people who were involved with, uh, you know, the the rape of cow, massive in numbers, uh, massive uh, the rape of cows and uh, kidnapping of the babies, the babies becoming, what, veal or uh, fattened up to become steak. And 
The mother becomes hamburger. But because Ben and Jerry's offer some vegan flavor, hey, they're the good guys, right? So, but not to me. But you know, I, I and I, you know, it's 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 difficult. I mean, it's uh, yeah, really unavoidable to do business only with vegan businesses, right? I mean, as any trip to a food market demonstrates, and uh, for me. For me, every visit to a food market, uh, you know, kind of puts me in a real life horror movie. You know, I'm, I'm grossed out by the shopping carts. I'm grossed out by the conveyor belt at the checkout counter. Uh, you know, so I don't know. Uh, although if I had an option for a vegan grocery store, I would definitely uh, go there. Um, and, you know, I talked about this with... Uh, Professor Francione in the past, and uh, you know, we 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 go to vegan restaurants, and maybe the uh, service staff isn't vegan, or the owner isn't vegan. And we had that situation uh, in California with Cafe Gratitude, and the the owners taking all of our vegan dollars and buying a ranch, and now producing so-called animal products. So, yeah, but I I do believe, you know, in terms of uh, playing the percentages, the chances are um, greater if you uh, patronize a vegan restaurant that the owner uh, or owners would be vegan and staff would be vegan. If you patronize a vegan business, you know, the, I think, I, I haven't seen any polls or statistics or data, but I would think that chances are greater that the owners and people working there uh, might be vegan. And I do feel that uh, vegan businesses do put it all on the line, you know? I mean, uh, many of them for the cause. So, you know, if I have my choice of going to Loving Hut or Chipotle, I am at uh, Loving Hut, you know? So anyway. Uh, that's uh, where I am with that. Um, and, uh, oh, I was going to get to this story. Well, we'll, we'll get to it uh, next week. We, would dis- we discussed the climate uh, uh, significantly today. Uh, climate change is transforming the world's food supply. We'll talk about that next week on Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. Um, and uh, that, uh, that will be... Uh, Topic for discussion, as we note that January uh, is the third warmest uh, month, the third warmest January in recorded history. So uh, look at that. Only the third warmest. Uh, Maybe maybe things. (sighs) I just say let's chill with with going vegan anyway. So, um, So before climate change transforms the world's food supply, I would suggest you head on over to uh, Vegetarian House, one of the world's great vegan restaurants. Uh, Unbelievable menu. Check out the menu at vegetarianhouse.us. This is uh, such a, I mean, it's, you know, the international cuisine. If you think uh, you're limited if you go vegan, no, you're opening up yourself to new worlds of cuisine. and uh you know you're not you're not sacrificing anything and you're not sacrificing anyone uh vegetarian house is 100% vegan non-gmo organic uh you have lots of raw options and fantastic desserts and well check out the menu and vegetarian house which is at 520 East Santa Clara Street in San Jose 
also caters. So if uh, you have an event coming up in the Bay Area, if uh, you're getting married, you want to impress the in-laws, make sure the food is great, have it catered by Vegetarian House. If you have a business event coming up uh, and you want to get a promotion, uh, I would say have it catered by Vegetarian House. That's uh, Vegetarian House. Dot us. Uh, I also want to express my appreciation to Evolution, dog and cat food, vegan dog and cat food, and Eric Weissman, uh, who is doing great work uh, helping people uh, whose, uh, whose animals have uh, health challenges. Um, so Daisy loves Evolution. Uh, she loves the cans. The, she loves the, the dry food now. So really and uh, animals uh, dogs and cats are doing really great on evolution so uh yep they can be vegan too happy and healthy so we'll continue uh we have uh, professor gary francione coming up on go vegan radio with bob linden and please support us with a tax deductible donation uh please find that donate button at goveganradio.com uh help us uh launch Radio Bobby, continue our weekly show, and do all the things we've done over the past 16 years. Go Vegan Radio at GoVeganRadio.com. Can't hear. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Yes. Okay. Uh, we just put the dogs outside. Okay. Yeah. Da- da- Daisy's had a lot to say tonight, also. So. Yeah. Indeed.
Okay, now the dogs have been put into the other room. Okay, they are uh, talkative tonight. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we appreciate freedom of bark, so never a problem yeah. here. Right. In fact, probably if I did a whole show of dogs barking, it would be probably the the highest rated show we have, you know. So uh, <laughs> maybe one of these days we'll experiment. So uh, is Anna Anna back in there with you or is she? Yes, yes, yeah. Anna, Anna is here. OK, so we welcome Professors Gary Francione and Anna Charlton. Uh, our uh, weekly commentary happening now. So uh, now we're. Uh, we have a new system. We're using, we're using Google and Google Hangouts or something to that effect. I think so. Um, and uh, we're being assisted by Russian hackers. Um, so, how are you today? Well, we're fine. Uh, we're fine. And um, how are you doing? Doing fine. I'm. I'm obsessively, impulsively. Uh, converting music for the online music radio station. I'm saying I want to get it online by March 4th. I don't know why I put pressure on myself like this. Um, and I'm converting music from YouTube to MP3, and I'm just so good at it now. I, I stay up all night doing it. That's. Uh, I was afraid this would happen. That's. That's why I never really want to start anything. I just get obsessive about it, and I can't stop. That's why I prefer... Uh, procrastination and and laziness, uh, but uh, it's too late now, and I'm I'm uh, converting all of this music, which I think really sounds great. So, um, as of March fourth, we'll have um, I hope a music radio station online where you'll never hear a commercial for anything with so called animal products. So. <laughs> is, 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 is there going to be is there going to be any any talk? I mean, is it just going to be music? Well, it'll be music, but there will be news features and uh you know uh you know little short uh, drop-ins uh that uh might have something to do with veganism and animals and you know related subject matter that might come up. So, uh, you know, my my idea is to also attract I mean this isn't just music, you know, music radio station for vegans. This is for people who really love music and uh, they're, I hope they're going to wind up finding it irresistible, and uh, the price that they'll pay is that they're going to have to hear some uh, some vegan propaganda along the way. It's not a not a high price to pay. I want to convert that audience too. <laughs> so, Excellent. So yeah, so uh, perhaps we'll uh, we'll have you making some uh, contributions to it. I, I I hope so. Maybe you can even have me on and, and singing a few songs. I could sing a few vegan songs. I'm only joking. I, I anyway. I know. I I I, I was just uh, gonna rescind uh, the offer there, uh, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the idea. We're, we're trying to attract people with music. You know, uh, it's like ah, with a voice like that, you should go far. You know, and then the farther, the better. So. So. Ah, so. But anyway, well, um, I thought we would talk a little bit tonight about Tom Reagan, who passed away on the 17th of February, and and um, uh, you know he he was um, he was a friend, um, and uh, we knew each other for many years, and and uh, and I thought we would talk a little bit about about Tom tonight, and and offer some of our recollections. Sure, but um, 
You know, I met Tom in um, in the fall. Well, actually, we met on the phone in the fall of 1984 because I was um, I just started teaching at Penn, and we had a rather um, interesting thing going on there at the time. Uh, some people who had gone into the medical school had taken a bunch of videotapes showing some really horrible experiments involving monkeys. And um, they, they distributed the, um, the videotapes, the copies of the videotapes were distributed to several people, including uh, the folks at PETA, which was then a pretty small group, and uh, it, it had um, it, it had been going for I guess maybe a year, and uh, it was it was still pretty small, and um, and they distributed the the a copy of the tapes to PETA, and and um, and I got a copy of the tapes, and um, and they showed some pretty gruesome experiments, and and uh, so we you know we started a campaign to call attention to what was going on at the University of Pennsylvania. And I remember um, meeting with some people who said, let's have a rally in the spring of 1985. And, um, and, and we'll protest these experiments and, and, you know, we'll get a lot of people to come out. And, and so I, I thought, well, you know, I'd never really done a, a rally before and I didn't know exactly what to do. And they said, well, just call some people and have them come and speak. So I, um, I, I somehow, and I don't remember how, I got to Tom Reagan and called him. And I remember speaking to him. It was early evening, and I called him at his house, and um, and we chatted for a few minutes. He was aware of what was going on at the University of Pennsylvania. And I said, "Will you come and speak at the rally in April of '85?" And he said, "Yes, sure." And um, that was my first conversation with him. And he came in the spring of '85. And he stayed at our house and, and, uh, for the weekend of, April, of uh, it was April 27th, I think, was the rally. And, and, um, and I'll never forget, Bob, we, uh, we drove in. Um, at the time, we were living uh, in New Jersey, and we drove in Pennsylvania and to, to, to the university where, where, uh, where I was teaching. And we, uh, we parked the car and went into my office. And... We met Jim Mason there. Did you do you remember Jim Mason, uh, Bob? I do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we met Jim Mason there, and Anna, it was uh, me and Anna and Tom and Jim, and we walked over from my office to the quad, and we were really, I was really anxious because I thought, you know, I'll be happy. I was going to be delighted, Bob, if there were two hundred people there. And um, I, I, as a matter of fact, I was, I was hoping, you know, I, I, I didn't know, you know, I, I thought it was going to be a disaster, frankly. And I was going to be very happy if there were 200 people. And we walked over to the quad, and the way the University of Pennsylvania is uh, set up, you can't really see the quad from the, the area we were walking and you know you sort of you sort of went down this path and then it opened up into the quad but you couldn't really see the quad from the path and so we were walking on the path and i was saying to tom and anna and jim god i hope there's some people there cuz it's going to be a real terrible it's going to be a disaster if no one shows up 
and then we walked at the, to the end of the path and on into the quad, and there were 1,500 people there. And Reagan turned to me and said, I don't remember exactly what I think what he said was, I think we're watching the beginning of the animal rights movement. And, and it was really quite amazing. And the, the rally went on for several hours, and um, it was very well attended. The energy was incredible. And that really was, in, in many ways, a, a, a very uh, important point in the American uh, animal movement uh, because nothing like that had ever happened before. There, there had never been um, a, 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 a there had never been an anti-vivisection campaign aimed at an Ivy League university where we had quite a bit of support coming from all over the world, basically, to close the lab down, which eventually we did get closed down in um, in 1985. Um, we got it. We got it closed down. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in July of 1985, uh, a, a large number of animal advocates on the 15th of July went and occupied the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, which were funding these things, these experiments. And there were about 100 people who literally took over, they, they took over the building of the institute that was funding. It was a peaceful thing. It was nonviolent. Um, and, and, but they, they occupied the building for several days. And one of the people who was in that occupation, uh, and I was the lawyer, I represented them. And one of the people, one of my clients was Tom Reagan. And, and, um, it was really, you know, he was, he was one of the people who, who, uh, who occupied the NIH. And it was, um, it was really. And also very important to keep in keeping people. It was a three day occupation yeah. of a federal building. Obviously, it wouldn't be allowed to go on for three days in, in this day and age, but at the time... No, we all would have gotten they, shot. They didn't know what to do with three, you know, a large number of people from all walks of life. And it was important to have people like Tom Reagan, um, you know, a noted philosopher, a person of stature, but he was also a, an anchoring presence for a lot of young people who didn't quite know what was going on and, and, um, and were worried and were, uh, you know, out of their normal environment. So he was a... Uh, an important rallying point. But yeah, he was, he was actually sort of ground that. Yes, he, he he was really he was really. Um, and that good Irish sense of humor and a bit yeah. of singing, you know, helped. He, he was really good. He was really good. He was he was like he was he was sort of the the the, the camp coordinator. Right. I mean, it was it was because we had people in there. We had you know people in there who were relatively young, and we had we had. Uh, people who were older. We had one woman who had been in—I don't know if it was Dachau or Buchenwald—but she, I mean, she had the, she had, um, you know, I'd never seen a tattoo. I mean, you know, well, I'd seen tattoos, but I'd never seen a tattoo of of the camps. And you know, she had the number on her on her arm. It was really quite chilling to to see. You know, I mean, I still remember. I'm sure she's passed away now. She was very old then, but um, but it was really chilling to see what one of those things looked like. And um, and Reagan was, you know, he was there and, you know, and, and it was, as I said, it was like three days people were in the building and they kept on doing these really obnoxious things like that. They were, they were turning down the heat, you know, they were turning up the air conditioner at night and they were like, it was, it was freezing. And, um, people were actually taking, you know, each, each office had, had, um, flags and, um, 
you know, they, they had the, the big flags on the staffs, each office. I mean, it's just amazing. I've never seen so many flags in my life. And people were just taking the flags off and sort of rolling themselves up in flags. And, and, um, and because it was, it was, it was horribly cold. Much and like, so much were, like politicians do these days, right? They, it was, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and they were, they were, they were trying to freeze everybody out. And it was, it was, I mean, I mean it, it was really, it was intriguing. It was fantastic. It was, it was fascinating because it was, it was nothing like this had ever happened before. I mean, nothing like this had ever happened before. And, and, um, and, and Tom was really great in sort of keeping everybody, you know, he was, he, he was keeping everybody sort of, you know, involved and engaged and distracted, which was really important. I mean, he needed to keep everybody sort of focused because you had a hundred people, um, in, you know, in a bunch of offices and, and, um, and, and, uh, you know, we were in the mean, you know, we were, we were negotiating with the NIH the entire time. There was, there was all sorts of stuff going on. And, and ultimately, um, what happened was, um, the Mar- Margaret Heckler, who was then the Secretary of Health and Human Services, looked at the videotape of the edited videotape because it was like 40 hours of videotapes that had been removed, and PETA had made a 25 or 27 minute tape, and um, and she looked at it and she closed the Penn Lab and ordered a, an investigation, and basically the funding was withdrawn from that lab. Unfortunately, they just started it up again using was it was it squid or I don't remember that using using some non-sympathetic <laughs> some animal that that PETA didn't feel that it could rally you know get people excited about. Um, unfortunately, uh, and you know, but it was 1985, and it was um, it was quite an interesting quite an interesting uh, event. It was, uh, it was quite an interesting event, and Reagan was I still remember that, and I remember driving home. Because uh, Tom stayed with us that weekend, uh, as, as uh, he stayed with us that weekend, and um, uh, in July, and I remember driving home, and I remember we were on I ninety five, and we saw a dog running. <laughs> we saw a stray dog running, and so I pulled the car over, and Reagan and I were running around trying to find this dog, and and trying to ch- sort of well, trying to initially chase the dog away from the road. Uh, and then trying to, to 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 get the dog, and we never did. A dog eventually sort of ran off through some woods that we couldn't get through, uh, but at least the dog didn't get hit by by a car. Uh, and um, and 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 you know, it was it was really it was just quite fascinating because you know nothing like that had ever happened before. You know, where where a an Ivy League university, a lab at an Ivy League university. Um, had been had been really um, the center of a of a of a Worldwide, I mean, it wasn't just in the United States. I mean, it was going on all over, all over, you know, in Europe and whatnot. But a real sort of attack of the re- of, of the experiments that were going on. And you know, you have to really try hard, Bob, to violate the Animal Welfare Act. As a matter of fact, it's almost impossible to do. But Penn succeeded in doing it, and um, and they, you know, they got in quite a bit of trouble um, for for uh, what they had done in terms of those experiments. And you know it was it was uh, it was they were they were just horrible. But you know I, I remember I mean I just remember that so terribly well. And um, and that thing never would have would have come off the way that it did in terms of the you know the the energy of everybody. I mean Reagan was just really um, uh, you know Tom just did a hell of a job in terms of of, uh, of keeping people. Um, uh, excited and you know enthused and whatnot. And you know look I mean he. he at the time, 
you know, you have to you have to remember at the time it was you know it was the early '80s. The only thing that had been written, the only significant thing that had been written that people were aware of, there had been some things that were written in Britain, but people didn't really know about them. They, they weren't really widely circulated. And um, I mean, people like Bridget Brophy and whatnot had been writing some very very sophisticated stuff, but basically people didn't know very much. You know, certainly people here didn't know about it. And you know, the main text was. And a singer's animal liberation, which was a, a utilitarian uh, analysis, and and Reagan in '83 had written the case for animal rights, which was a rejection of of singer's utilitarianism, and and um, and it, you know they were exciting times. I mean, they were they were they were really you know exciting times, and and um, you know, and I I just I think back over that, and you know, it's sort of hard for me to believe. That um, he's not around anymore. Uh, we, I've had some correspondence with him. I had some correspondence with him uh, in the past several years. He was not well, um, and I take it he he actually he got pneumonia uh, fairly recently, and I think that's what what took him out. He had uh, he had Parkinson's disease, but he was. Um, but I think it was the pneumonia that, at least, that's what I understand. It was the pneumonia that that killed him. But um, it's sort of hard to believe that Tom is not around anymore. And you know we had a lot. Of, I mean, you know we had an we had an awful lot of um, we had a lot of adventures. I mean, in the in the 1980s, I think um, you know we, we uh, Anna and 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 I and Tom and Nancy were um, were friends. We socialized very. You know, we socialized a lot. We had all gone to the University of Virginia. We were all graduates of the University of Virginia, and. Um, and at different times, Tom was was uh, Tom and Nancy were older than we were, but uh, we had all been at UVA, and um, and and it was you know and and Tom loved New York. Tom and Nancy loved New York, and they used to come and stay with us quite a bit, and um, and we had a, we had a wonderful time, uh, and it, it, it was interesting because in the in the you know. Singer had written Animal Liberation. Tom had written The Case for Animal Rights. Nobody really knew what these things meant, though, in terms of how you structure a movement. Because, you know, remember, I mean, well, I don't know what you were doing at that time in terms of what your involvement was. Were you involved with this in the, in the 80s? Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, well, I went, I went vegan in uh, 84, so I uh, must have uh, must have been involved with something, uh, you know. It okay. seems... I mean, um, but you know, in the in the eighties, there really wasn't a rights versus welfare thing, you know. Well, we were we were talking about this as we've been thinking about um, um, Tom over the last few days. I mean, he felt the frustration. I know uh, the lack of uh, philosophical underpinning that there was in the movement, which is understandable because people were reacting to um, <clears throat> uh, campaigns such as the Silver Spring Monkeys and then the head, head injury lab at Penn that Gary was just talking about. And we were sort of bouncing from, from campaign to campaign without really having a strong philosophical grounding and knowing where to go and what means to choose. And Peter, which had taken really rocketed off, had taken off very quickly from being the very small group that it was when we first encountered them um, through those very high-profile campaigns uh, to sort of take over the American anti, uh, the American animal rights movement. 
But as Gary was mentioning, they were very much, um, they had read uh, Ingrid Newkirk and Alex Pacheco had read um, Singer, and um, they promoted Animal Liberation, the book, as really the book that you should read if you were interested in animal issues. Um, they, you know, it, it was before the internet, but the from Peter News, you could order Animal Liberation. You couldn't order the case for animal uh, rights. Yeah, I don't. I don't. At least certainly not at that yeah, time. Yeah. Maybe a little later. Um, but but it wasn't the the American animal rights movement that really took off in the 80s. Was not didn't have a strong philosophical foundation. It still doesn't. No, and it, it never sort of caught up in that. It never sort of sorted it out. And I, I know Tom felt the frustration of that, having as he thought he'd worked out a, a blueprint that would be a better foundation than, than Singer's work. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting because through the 80s, nobody really knew what the strategy of the movement ought to be. You know, I mean, because it's like, well, you know, Singer says this and Reagan says that, and what the hell different? I mean, you know, what, what's, what, what, what do we ought to do? How does this translate into a social movement? How do you, how do you operationalize it for a social, as a social movement? And um, that was really sort of where um, we, where Tom and I started getting close in terms of trying to figure out what it all meant. And um, and by the time the late '80s are rolling around, it's becoming clear that the animal move that whatever whatever the animal rights movement was, it was sort of collapsing and becoming an animal welfare movement again. It was promoting welfare campaigns and and. You know, Tom and Nancy would come and spend the weekend. We would end, we would end up talking. The four of us would end up talking, you know, through the night, literally. Um, you know, we would we would you know we would we would go out for dinner on Friday night and wouldn't get to bed until, you know, Saturday morning at seven o'clock because we'd be talking about, you know, what does this all mean? How, you know, what 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 do we do? And there'd be other people involved. So other people were involved with this as well. People like Sue Coe, you know, would come over. It, it was, New York was wonderful at that time and. And we had an apartment in the West Village, and people people who were interested in animal stuff used to come and hang around, and we would all talk and have discussions late into the night and into the morning. And um, it was then we started really talking about the rights versus welfare business, and how we really needed to recognize that wealth that that even if your end goal was the recognition of rights, even if you said, look, I'm a rights person, I don't believe in utilitarianism, and I'm a rights person, and I want to see everything abolished, I want to see animal exploitation abolished, you know, uh, people were still saying that, you know, we needed to get wealth. Well, that was the position that people want, you know, that a lot of people thought, well, you still needed to use welfare reforms to get to a rights position. And it was, you know, it was largely as a result of like discussions that we were having in the in, in the, the loft and Greenwich Street um, that we we came up with, you know, this idea that um, a movement's uh, uh, you know ends have to create its means, um, and and the the means can't be inconsistent with the ends, and that we needed to, you know, have abolitionist means to abolitionist ends, and. As a matter of fact, um, uh, Tom and I wrote uh, an essay along those lines in 1992 that was published in Animal's Agenda, and Ingrid Newkirk, it was a point-counterpoint thing, where Tom and I took the position that welfare reforms 
can't work. And Ingrid took the position that um, and that animal welfare reforms should be what we would what we should pursue. And those were great times. In 1990, we had the march. Were you at the march in 1990, Bob? I was not. No. Yeah, um, we had the march on Washington, which which was remarkable. It was just it was a remarkable event. And and you know, as I say, it, it, you know, there were. I mean, we were just developing the critique, um, and so you know, it wasn't really there. There, you know, there were a lot of welfareists involved. I mean, the, the the I mean, you know, the march on the march on Washington was, you know, was a was a, a, a an event that included rights people and welfare people, um, and we all sort of ourselves as animal people, but the critique was developing. I mean, you know, we, you know, Reagan and I were in the in the process of of developing that critique, and the the march really sort of I think was a pivotal event for us. And then he and I started going around um, and doing you know animal rights conferences together, where we were talking about you know it's time to just get rid of welfareism, and it's time to get rid of single issue campaigns. As as we knew them then, um, and and um, those were exciting times because we were developing a movement that was different from the welfareist movement, and it, you know and and it was it was translating the philosophy into in you know into 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 social action and into into you know how you translate the theory and sort of what does it mean in terms of how you how you bring it to people how you bring it to the public what does it mean. And um, what are you telling people to do? And so we were talking about veganism and the importance of veganism. Um, and and uh, for a while, we tried to sort of cling on to the idea that vegetarian, we should try to hold on to vegetarianism and as, a, as a term. Rehabilitate yeah, it. Yeah, re- rehabilitate it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, strict vegetarianism. Um, and... Um, but basically, we were talking about veganism, and um, and uh, yeah, those were exciting times. I mean, those were you know, to me, those were the, the sort of the, the pivotal. One one thing that I, I'm I will remember from that time is the importance that um, Tom uh, held for education. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he had been a, a conventional uh, university philosophy professor. But he stepped out of that role, stepped out of the classroom, stepped out of the lingo and the, the, um, the terms that might be hard for some people to approach, and relentlessly educated and spoke to everybody um, in clear and um, inspiring ways. And I think that should be really his legacy, yeah. um, the importance that he, he, he uh, held for educating everybody, that that everyone could be educated, that these were ideas that everybody should um, should chew on and digest and really make part of of, of the ethics that uh, guided their life. And it wasn't it wasn't just book learning. It was it was something that had to translate into a, a moral um, signpost for the rest of their lives, and that uh, he was very good at it. Absolutely. And um, and, and Singer didn't, felt so passionately about it. And Singer didn't didn't used to do that sort of. Right. Stuff. I mean, I mean, Singer Singer was Singer was much more aloof. He was much more, you know, he he was he didn't do the sort of thing. You know, he I mean, we were going around and talking to conferences in you know in in basically everywhere, and you know we were going to we you know we were going to local 
grassroots conferences. Singer didn't used to do that sort of stuff. And and so we were going around and having these discussions with people and it was really quite it was it was quite interesting. And I, um, I have many memories of Tom giving speeches from a stage. Yeah. But but the more important memories and and for me are him sitting around the table with people, having dinner with people, talking with people in in a more intimate and uh and really engaging situation. Uh, situation. I think that was his strength, really. Yeah, we had in our in our place uh, in New York. Um, you know, we had this. It was a loft, and we had this like large room, um, and and which was sort of like you know a place where we ate, but it also was a place where you know we we could accommodate a lot of people to sit around and. So you know, we would have these events at the house where you know we would have a whole bunch of people sitting in the house and. And um, you know we would have these discussions that would go on for hours and hours and hours, and they were wonderful. I mean, it was in many ways. You know, we we really sort of thought through the, the what I thought some of the hard questions were um, at that time. That I'm still not I, I'm not sure that well. We talked them through, we developed them, and I'm still not sure that they've ever really been accepted. They haven't been accepted by the mainstream movement. Indeed, they've been rejected. And what's really sad in many ways is you know Tom Tom. Tom was a was a was a regular academic. I mean, he was a philosophy professor at NC State, and and um, and you know, as Anna said, he was sort of he stepped out of that role and he got into the activist role, and he did it very well. Um, but I, you know, Tom was always, I think, a little uncomfortable with that. And what's really sad to me, um, I mean, it's sad. It's I, I'm very sad that he's gone, but um, I'm also sad at what could have been. Um, you know, in, in 95, 96, there was a second march and on Washington. And this was, remember, you have to remember that between 90 and 95, 96, I think the march was 96, mm-hmm. um, between 90 and 96, a lot had happened. And the, the welfare rights thing became a central focus when it, it, it hadn't, you know, in 1990, it was just starting. And I think that, <coughs> excuse me, it was just starting it had not really developed. And Reagan and I didn't do that piece um, in agenda till I think that was 92. I think it was 92. Yeah, I think it was 92. And, um, and so between 90 and 96, the whole, you know, the the rights welfare thing now becomes a central focus. And so the march in 96 was being organized by welfareists, and they and it was going to be a welfareist event. And there were welfareists involved in the 1990 march. I do not mean to say that there weren't. There were. But it was a different time, and things had changed, and the, the ideas that, you know, the whole rights welfare distinction had become crystallized in a way that it wasn't in 1990. And and the rights welfare distinction for purposes of what that meant in terms of a social movement. And so um, in 1995, um, when the second march is being planned, um, we had a meeting. It was at it was at Rutgers, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a it was a meeting we had at Rutgers. Tom came up, and we had a meeting with a bunch of people, and we decided that we could not participate in the march because the march, you know, we had to take a position on the rights welfare, you know, that, that it was a welfareist event. And it was unlike the 1990 march in all sorts of ways. 
Um, it was unlike the march in, of 1990, and we needed to make a statement about the rights welfare distinction. And so we decided, all of us decided that we were going to boycott the march. And so we, we, uh, we issued a statement to that effect. And um, the reaction of the movement was quite horrible. Um, you know, the welfareists uh, um, were angry. They were really angry. And, um, and, and, you know, the thing that is quite uh, upsetting is there's never really been an ability to, to disagree with, you know, you can't disagree in the movement. In, 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 this, in this thing called the movement, which is really just, it's not a, in many ways it's not a social movement at all. It's a collection of charities and people who are aligned with these corporate charities. But um, you can't disagree. Disagreement is not, you know, is not tolerated and never has been. And so when we took the position that we weren't going to, you know, we weren't going to uh, participate in the march, I mean, we didn't make any statements that people were bad or evil or identify people as being bad people. We just said, we just said that we didn't think that, um, that we should participate in the march um, because it was a welfareist event. And uh, people got really upset, and um, uh, we started, the, the group of us who were, going to boycott it, started getting harassed. And, um, you know, my position on that has always been to hell with them. You know, let them do what they want to do and just ignore them. Um, and, um, but I think, I think that other people were uh, more affected by what happened. And I think Tom was affected by what happened. And I think Tom was very taken aback by the hostility that was expressed to him. And um, and things changed dramatically. I wrote it, actually. I wrote about this in Rain Without Thunder. I wrote it as a postscript because the book was in press when all of this was happening, and I quickly did something which I appended as a postscript to the book right before the book went to press. And um, and the result was is that Tom decided that he wasn't going to boycott the march, and. Um, and and he um, he decided he was going to support the march. I took the position that it was a worthless event. It was a counterproductive event. I was going to boycott. I said I was going to boycott it, and indeed I was going to boycott it because I thought it needed to be boycotted. And so I boycotted it, and he didn't. And um, and after that, uh, his position on on the whole welfare rights thing changed, in the sense that you know he was obviously an advocate for animal rights. And that's not the point. The point is, is that he began to take the position that uh, we could support welfareism in various forms. And he did some, you know, and that was it. That was, you know, 95, 96 was sort of the end of our relationship. Um, there were some other issues involved as well. But that was basically the thing was that was, was the march when, you know, Tom decided that, that he was going to um, – uh, gravitate toward the, you know, he, he was going to be more tolerant of the welfareist strand. And he got close with people like Kim Stallwood, um, who is, um, uh, to call, call Kim a, uh, a welfareist um, is the understatement of the, of the world. Um, and I mean, he's a real welfareist. And, uh, and, and Tom did things like, you know, he had, he had a conference where John Mackey, from Whole Foods came and spoke and was the was an honoree. He had some conferences I recall it was called the Power of One, 
And it was all about how individuals can make a difference. And one of the people who was making a difference was John Mackey. And Tom was, you know, had co-sponsored an event with Kim at which this happened. And I was horrified at this because I just couldn't believe, uh, you know, that Tom was doing this. But, you know, I, I think, I, I really believe that, um, you know, I really believe that, that that happened, that all of that happened because, um Tom just really couldn't deal with the, you know, the hostility. It was, it was palpable. I mean, it was horrible. I mean, you know, you know the way these people get, and and um, you know they get angry. They they can't discuss things. There's no such thing as rational discourse or discussion. People just get angry, and and they get they get nasty. And 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 it's sort of sad because I think that um, had had that all turned out differently, had we continued with the with you know promoting. The, the idea that um, you know that that uh, you you couldn't you couldn't have um, you couldn't promote welfareism you couldn't promote the single issue campaigns as we then knew them um, you know that all that stuff was just counterproductive had we continued with that I think we would have had um, we, we would have been we'd be in a different place now from the way that we are because what basically happened was after ninety six the welfare has just got stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and basically eclipsed the the, the, the rights movement right out. I mean, basically, there is there is no rights movement, um, you know, as far as the you know as far as the 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 organ you know the the the, the institutionalized movement. There is no rights movement. Um, you know, the rights movement manifests as you know, a grassroots movement, which is basically an abolition, you know, the abolitionist movement, um, and, you know, which is challenging use, um, which is rejecting the property status of animals, which is rejecting welfareism, which is rejecting single-issue campaigns, which is embracing uh, the idea that human discrimination is, is, a, is, is like discrimination against, uh, is like speciesism, is like racism, sexism, classism, ableism, etc., and is nonviolent. And so that's, but that's a grassroots movement, which um, you know is is uh, is really not part of any. It's it's a counter movement, you know. It's it really is a counter movement, and so um, so I think you know it's sad to me because I I mean after '96 after that happened, Tom and I just sort of drifted apart. We had some other differences. I mean, you know, um, uh, uh, we had some other, we had some other differences, but. Um, uh, uh, like like singer Reagan, Tom believed that you know if if people you know if you were sitting in a restaurant and they brought the you know uh, the meal out and you know it had cheese on it he he would you know he he would not send it back I would and did and um, and so we had you know we had differences on 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 that sort of stuff but but it was really the rights welfare thing that um, that that uh, uh, caused us to sort of drift apart and. And it's sad because I think that um, had we stayed together and continued to promote a really clear anti-welfareist um, uh, uh, movement, you know, a, 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 an abolitionist movement that was based on the principles of uh, rejecting welfareism and single-issue campaigns and all that sort of stuff. Um, what w- way back then? What were, what were the welfare campaigns? Uh, what 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 what, oh, God, what did the, the, same, the, the same thing they are now? There was like the anti, you know, it was there were a lot of single issue campaigns, which well, um, it's an anti cages where Tom lists yeah, the yeah. campaigns that he thought 
rights people and welfare people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, by the time, by the time, you know, the t- and it was, I think it was 2002, 2001, 2002, thereabouts. Tom wrote Empty Cages, which just, you know, blew. I, I mean, I, I, when I read that book, I was just astounded because Tom, Tom basically said, well, welfareists and you know, welfareists and rights people, they can work together on campaigns, and, you know, like the, you know, getting, getting, stopping greyhound racing and getting animals out of circuses and, and you know, and fur, it was I think fur the anti fur camp. I, I mean, it was like basically he had all these single issue campaigns that he was thinking were great, you know. Whereas in the early '90s, you know, he was, you know, he, he and I were were pretty much, you know, eye to eye on rejecting that sort of stuff. That if you were going to have single issue campaigns. They couldn't be the sorts of single-issue campaigns that welfare is supported. They had to be different sorts of single-issue campaigns. I wrote about them in Rain Without Thunder. Um, I've never seen such a campaign, I have to say. I mean, I, I identified the characteristics that such a campaign would have to have. I have yet to see one ever. You know, I mean, single-issue campaigns are disasters, in my view. And So you identified uh, what... what what might be an acceptable single issue campaign? How did you identify that, or what, what characteristics? Uh... Well, I mean, I mean, you see, what what single issue campaigns basically single issue campaigns. The problem with single issue campaigns um, is that they identify practices that are problematic, and 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 but they identify them as being sort of worse than everything else and by implication everything else is better and and so the, and and morally acceptable and so in a single issue campaign um what i what i wrote about in rain without thunder was that a single issue campaign if a single issue campaign was going to be acceptable it was going to have to be something that ended a significant activity that was constitutive of the institutionalized form of exploitation and was it was clear that it was taking a brick out of the wall that basically it was you were ending something but you were making it clear that you were ending this on the way to ending it all and you were you were not identifying anything as being better than and therefore morally acceptable in place of it so it's not that you were saying foie gras was bad um, you know, and, and because, you know, it's worse than steak and by implication steak is better. Um, or, you know, it, it's, it's that you were saying, well, you know, we're identifying this, but we're going to go on and we're going to, you know, we're going to go after steak next and we're going to, you know, but it was, it, it had to be sort of a really, you know, I, and I've never seen a campaign like, I've never, I mean, single issue campaigns are basically, well, you know, we're, we're not taking a position on anything else. We're just taking a position on this. And basically single issue campaigns all involve coalitions where you've got people who are engaged in the supposedly less reprehensible or less objectionable forms of exploitation. So what you do is you have people who eat steak and eat chicken and eat fish, and they're all, you know, they're together with people who don't eat any animals at all and who, you know, who have vegan diets, um, and they're all, you know, they're all opposed to foie gras. But, but in order to make a campaign like that work and to get donations from the people who eat steak and chicken and fish and et cetera, everything but foie gras, you've got to make it clear that, that foie gras is worse than the things that those people eat. So you end up with these coalitions um, of people who are engaged in exploitative activities but who don't think what they're doing is as bad as what everybody else, you know, as what the target is doing. So, so you can I, have a foie gras protest and then you go eat hamburgers afterward. 
exactly, exactly. And and you know, or having an anti-fur protest and showing up in your leather and your wool, you know, your wool sweaters and your leather shoes, which is like, and I, I mean, that was, I still remember, you know, in the in the you know early '80s when I was when I was um, doing law. And, you know, and I was going and representing activists at anti-fur rallies, I'd get there and, you know, 90% of the people were wearing leather and they were wearing wool and they were wearing, you know, silk scarves and, you know, or silk ties or, you know, whatever they were wearing. But, I mean, they were wearing animal, but, but it was like, well, this idea was that fur was worse. And the answer is that's nonsense. And that's the problem with single-issue campaigns. And what's, what really is, uh, is sad to me was that in 92, Reagan went right back to that stuff. He went right back to the traditional single-issue campaign. Not only did he go back to the traditional single-issue campaign, but he goes back to it and says, these are things that welfareists and rightists can work on. Well, the only way rightists and welfareists can work on a single-issue campaign is to have it be a classical single-issue campaign model. And, and so, you know, so basically Tom just like sort of, he really embraced in many ways as far as, activist ideology is concerned, a very new welfareist model, the idea that, well, ultimately he wants to see it all end, but the way that it's all going to end is by promoting, you know, John Mackey and the power of one and, you know, and, and sort of engaging in and supporting the, the, um, the sorts of campaigns that Stallwood, that Kim Stallwood, um, you know, uh, promotes and, and that other, you know, I mean, he, he got really into that sort of, you know, uh, of the idea that, well, you know, we can work with welfareists. Yeah. I think and, Gene Bauer, didn't Gene Bauer introduce John Mackey at that event? I remember Gene Bauer at the Power of One or talking about. I, you know, you know I, I, I honestly don't remember. Um, it's something I, I, I want to block out of my brain forever. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, I, he may have. He, he may very well have. But I was just horrified that Tom was doing this sort of stuff. And, and you know, and again, I, 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 I think part of it is that, you know, you, end, you have someone who's worked out a very interesting um, – uh, moral theory. I know you don't agree with everything with it, Gary, but obviously you agree, agree with most of it. Sure. Um, but um, but at the same time, it comes up against an increasingly corporatized animal welfare movement, which is swallowing up the new burgeoning animal rights movement and neutralizing it into the old welfare ways. And what do you do with your theory in those things? You want to do something. And um, I think Tom was at his greatest when he was doing education. And we needed more of it to have a, a core of, of abolitionist-grounded rights, um, animal rights um, people um, to take the ideas forward. Um, and I, th I, th I think we should have plugged away at the education longer <laughs> before yeah. we uh, degenerated into yet more single issue campaign. Uh, but uh, you know I, uh, yeah, I when West Hollywood uh, banned fur uh, the um, Sorry, what? when West Hollywood banned fur there was that uh, movement uh, going on and I I attended the discussions in the auditorium there and uh, one of the uh, city council members on stage said uh, well, you, you want to ban fur now, you know, like what's next, leather? And I I was the one applauding. I, I think I was the only one, maybe somebody else in the audience too. It was like, yeah, that's, that's the idea. Like, okay, today fur, leather, come on, wool, let's get it all, you know? So Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, I remember when the West Hollywood fur ban came up, 
and some, you know, somebody called me for a comment, some newspaper called me for a comment, and I said I thought it was ridiculous. What's the difference between fur, wool, leather, silk, and more importantly, um, you know, what's the difference between wearing animals and eating them? Because that's the real problem. Uh, nothing's ever going to change while everybody's eating them. And boy, I'll tell you, I, I got some really, really horrific, um, you know, uh, communications from animal people who got very upset that I said that. And it's, you know, but I, I mean, look, that's the position I take. I don't really care whether anybody likes it. Um, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, and, and um, but I, I think, you know, I, 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 think, I, I think Anna's right. I mean, I think Tom never, I don't think Tom really understood the, the corporatization part of it. And, and, and I think also, you know, he was, I don't think Tom was, you know, comfortable with the sort of the nastiness and the just plain viciousness of these animal people in terms of, of um, you know, if you criticize their little welfare parties, um, they just get really, really upset. And they're un- incapable of discussing it with you rationally as to whether it's a good idea. The fact that you, that you criticize it means that you're a bad person and it means that they can say whatever they want to say about you um, because, you know, they're, you know they're, they're, the, the movement in many ways is utilitarian and, you know, you have these people thinking they're doing, you know, holy work, so therefore anything, you know, if you, you disagree with them, you by definition are harming animals so that they can say anything they want to about you, and they do. And I think Tom was very sensitive about it. And actually, I remember having a conversation, or many, actually, a number of conversations with Tom, um, about, you know, about the reactions that, that um, we would get from people when we took these positions and that, you know, he just had to be ready for that. And I think, he, you know, I think, you know, for a while he did, you know, he, he um, you know, he, he dealt with it. Uh, but then in 95, it got really nasty. And 95, 95 was a turning point for lots of different reasons. The, 90, the 96 March was, was uh, you know, a time when, um, when, when we were going to, um, you know, well, it was a time when the welfare, the welfare movement realized what was going on. They understood that um, that there was a right that 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 there was a real schism in, in amongst animal people, and that they saw that there was there were a lot of people who were gravitating to the rights position and being critical of welfareism. And I believe the '96 March was a political event that was intended to to really suppress. The, the you know the, it was it was a political statement that the rights movement was not wanted, and um, and I think things got got really quite bad after you know around that time really quite bad in terms of the the level of of uh, vicious discourse, and I think Tom just at, at that point just sort of said well that was not his scene anymore, mm-hmm. and um, and that's sad I mean I, I I regret that, and you know I wish that that we had soldiered on and and kept doing what we were doing because it would have, you know, we would have developed things and things would have moved faster. But, you know, um, they're happening in a different way now. And, uh, but, you know, I, I look back, I have, you know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of fondness. I mean, I, I, some of the best times I remember having, you know, the early nineties, those, those, those weekends at our apartment in New York city, when Tom and Nancy would come up and we would have these, these unbelievable weekends where, you know, um, Discussions would go on for hours and hours and hours and hours, and 
and um, you know, we were we were doing. I mean, we were we were, you know, um, there are no roadmaps in outer space, you know, and we were trying to sort of figure out what the hell to do, mm-hmm. and um, and it was it was quite interesting. It was really quite, and, and I have very very fond memories. You know, I have very fond memories, and you know, a few times. Um, uh, the four of us went to Europe, and we taught. We taught. Was it? I think it was it two years. We went and did we go? Did they go with us? But one, yeah, we went. We all went to Spain, and we taught at the University of Madrid, uh, which was just great. Um, Anna and I did that for two for two years. Um, and the second year, Tom and Nancy came. Was it the second year or the mm-hmm. first year? The second year, Tom and Nancy came, and. Um, we had just a magnificent time, and um, and also you know I was like you know that was a very it was a it was an important time in my life in terms of you know I was developing my ideas and the whole theory of property and how and and why welfareism couldn't work you know not only was it immoral but it was structurally unsound because of the economic and legal aspects of the pro you know that were you know, the, the consequences of the property status of animals made welfare structurally unsound. And the way the movement worked meant that single-issue campaigns were always going to involve these coalitions which were going to end up promoting continued ex- exploitation. So, you know, I was working on a lad stuff, and, you know, it was, it was an exciting time. I mean, it was an exciting, exciting time. And, um, you know, and I, I, I miss Tom. Uh, I always will. And um, I wish things had stayed together. I wish we had stayed together. And um, I wish we had continued to promote um, a, uh, a more progressive message than what exists now. But, you know, it's happening. It's happening in a different form, in a different way, in a different time. But it's happening. And we, and, uh, um, we keep on keeping on. Uh, yeah, we keep on keeping on. Yeah. I, uh, it occurred to me, my, I'm thinking, didn't I have Tom Reagan on the on the program? But I thought it might have been before I even had the archives. But I, I just searched for his name and the archives at goveganradio.com, and it looks like there is an interview from September twenty fourth, two thousand six, uh, with Tom Reagan, which I didn't even realize was there. So uh, who knows what's what's even said in this interview? I guess I'll have to listen to it and see. Uh, send it around. I if it's anything interesting, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, eleven years ago. Hmm. So, time marches on. Indeed, indeed. I'm going to be doing some writing about this in in the the period to come, in terms of some some recollections and stuff. But it was an important, you know, it was a it was an interesting time in the movement. And um, I think I was and, just following whatever anybody said to do. You know, I mean, I went. V- in 1984, about the time that you were all planning everything, I I was working at uh, a radio station in San Antonio. It was uh, Star 106, and I I wanted to do an event to benefit some sort of animal organization, and I was still what I called vegetarian, meaning I was nothing. <laughs> I I I didn't do anything, but I thought I was doing something. I was that vegetarian, um, and then I came across material from this organization in San Antonio, and I about the eggs and dairy. And I said, I've been doing this for animals all these years, like embarrassingly calling myself a, you know, a vegetarian for 13 years. And then, you know, it was like, wow, I can't, you know, so I became vegan uh, upon seeing that information. And I just went along with, Hey, Oh, for a protest. Okay, great. For, you know, whatever anybody was saying to do, I just did it. Um, I was in Seattle for a while. I was on the board of directors of of Paws, organizing marches and all all sorts of things. I was just 
going with the program at the time and thought, um, you know, I, I, we were, we were all vegan. It seemed all of us who were involved with this, but, uh, we never did have the, you know, we never did promote the vegan part. <laughs> That's what was missing, I think. And and we didn't, we never did promote the, the leather part when we were talking about fur, you know, we were never talking about the leather and wool and silk. So it, it really, you know, it, 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 I still remember, um, uh, you, you, you perhaps remember the Action for Life conferences. Do you remember those things? Mm, that I don't. No, I don't remember. Uh, Action, Action for Life conferences eventually became the national. The um, the the national. Uh, uh, there were Alex. There were conferences that were put on by the farm animal reform movement and Alex Hershap. They were called the Action for Life conferences, and I remember going to an Action for Life conference in Los Angeles, and it must have been, I mean, it is a long time ago. This is probably 84. Maybe, I mean, I think this is, I think this is the fall of 84. I don't remember. I think it was the fall of 84. Um, and, and I remember um, there being, you know, one of the focuses of the conference was the pound seizure campaign. Do you remember the pound seizure campaign where yes. people were trying to stop pounds from turning over animals, um, you know, to, uh, people to vivisection or... Not, not, but animals from pounds. Right. They were trying to stop. They were trying to stop vivisectors from getting animals from pounds. And I remember being in this big discussion with Cleveland Amory talking about pound seizure and why we should oppose pound seizure. And I said, I'm missing something here. Why are we saying that pound seizure is bad and we should have purpose-bred animals instead? <laughs> Why are why are we taking the I don't understand that position. And people say, Well, you know, you gotta go, you know, you gotta take small steps, you got I said, Yeah, but what we're doing is we're promoting the idea that that first of all we're promoting vivisection, but secondly we're saying that, you know, it's perfectly all right for vivisectors to use purpose bred animals. They just but they, they should just they they shouldn't use animals from pounds. And I remember asking Cleveland um, you know, Cleveland, what's the difference? And I, 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 as I recall, he said, well, the, the pound animals, they trust people more because they're people's pets. I said, but they're all domesticated animals, and they're all, you know, they're all domesticated. To, in, you know, I mean, the, the animals that the, the vivisection uh, supply houses were, were, were producing, they also trusted people because they're domesticated animals. And, and um, but, you know, what would the, what's the difference? I mean, why... Why do animals who trust humans matter more morally and animals that, you know, may trust humans less or may have less of a bond because they've never been owned as pet property or whatever, um, why do they matter less? And I remember, like, people thinking, well, why are you asking these questions? You know, don't be a pain in the ass. Why are you asking these questions? And, um, you know, so, so this, this actually started with me fairly early. Um, I didn't really understand it. And, and, um, and I think, you know, I think that, that um, uh, you know, when I got together with Tom, you know, and Tom was initially, I don't think he had thought about a lot of these things. You know, you know a lot of these, these particular, these, these, you know, he had written a philosophy book. And I didn't think that, I don't think he thought about, all, and interestingly, he always used to say, and he's actually said this in print, that, the book, Case for Animal Rights, is a different book. The, the book ended up being a different book from the book that he, that he started writing. And that, you know, it got more radical as it went on. And, you know, and, but, but Tom would be the first to admit that he hadn't really thought about how to operationalize the thing in terms of theory, in terms of what, the, what, what a social movement meant. And so I think a lot of these things he hadn't really thought about. So we were sort of like, 
you know, he was he was somebody that that you know that you know, we were bouncing ideas off each other. Well, what what should we be supporting? You know, should we be supporting a pound seizure campaign that says that it's all right to use purpose bred animals? See, and, see, and, but you know, I, I think a lot of people miss the consequences of some of this, though. I, I don't know that people thought use purpose bred animals instead. You know, I mean, in, in my thinking, it wouldn't have been used. You know, but but of course, who. Whom will they use then? Uh, but Bob, 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 it was Bob. It was extremely explicit. I mean, was it I really? Remember, I, see, I don't remember. I see. I don't remember God. that. Yeah, it was absolutely explicit. I mean, you know, the 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 pound seizure people were explicitly saying that that per, that it's better, it's morally better to use purpose bred animals, and and you know, and I remember having huge disagreements with Cleveland about Cleveland Amory because he was big into this. And I don't remember when Wayne Passell came onto the scene because he started, as you know, or you may know, but Wayne started off with fun for animals. Um, and, and I don't remember when Wayne came on. I just don't remember, but, um, but at some point back then Wayne came onto the scene and, and, you know, that was their, you know, that was a big campaign of theirs was the pound seizure campaign. And I, re- I do remember at this action for life conference, Cleveland giving this big speech about, you know, how, how, you know, we have to stop using pound animals and we should be using purpose bred animals instead. Well, you know, and, I, I don't remember that part, you know, I mean, I, I really don't remember, you know, cause, uh, yeah, I just, I just, and, 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 I always, I always had problems with the fur campaign because the fur campaign was vilely sexist from the, I mean, from the moment, I mean, the fur campaign was a sexist campaign. Um, you know, it was, it was aimed at women. It, it, it was, the imagery was horribly sexist. The sorts of, 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 I mean, you go to these rallies and, you know, I used to go to the rallies and sort of deal with the police because I would be, you know, I'd be there to, to protect the, the demonstrators. And a woman would walk by with a fur coat, and you, you ought to, I still remember hearing these absolutely bone-chilling, horribly vulgar things that people would say to women who were walking by wearing fur coats. And many of the people who were saying these really vulgar things to the women wearing the fur coats we're standing there wearing their, you know, their their fur coats, wearing wearing wool jackets and wearing leather, and and you know, um, and so and, and and I have to tell you, a lot of the quote leaders of the movement back then were not vegans, Bob. I can assure you of that. They were not vegans. I mean, the 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 I could tell you stories for hours about embarrassing situations where you know people would they weren't vegans. And and um, Ooh, I, and, I'm, you know, I'm curious now. I almost want to hear. Let's turn it into no, the no, go- well, gossip segment here. A different show. I think we run out of time. <laughs> but, um, different show. But they weren't. They you know they 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 uh, they weren't. You know a lot a lot of the leaders were not vegans. I can assure you of that. And um, and you know and that was uh, you know that was something else that you know that I I was uh, talking about fairly early on in terms of saying that. You know, we can't be eating them, wearing them, or using them. But, you know, it's, it's always been, for me, you know, the, the, the primary focus, although I stopped wearing wool and leather uh, very early on as well. 
But, you know, my view has always been as long as you're eating them, nothing changes. As soon as you stop eating them for moral reasons, everything changes. I mean, once you realize you shouldn't be eating them for moral reasons, you don't buy leather shoes anymore, you don't go to SeaWorld, you don't participate in rodeo circuses or things like that. And, and But, you know, starting with these other things first is always sort of a, a, a prescription for failure. Yeah. You know, and, what's um, interesting, about a year ago, uh, HSUS uh, pretty much proposed uh, pound seizure for California in Sacramento. It proposed legislation where uh, dogs and cats uh, could be purchased by private businesses, assume, uh, including for the purpose of uh, vivisection. Um, and that 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 was only about a year ago here in in, in California. Wait, wait. HSUS was proposing that people that vivisectors could get animals from yes pounds? yes it was uh let's see what was it doing i think it was proposing that there be no waiting uh period for cats uh at shelters and then uh, dogs and cats at shelters uh should be sold to private uh businesses um well yeah the, that, the this was about was- a year ago um and i think uh Oh gosh, uh, the the UCLA professor uh, who who was at the first World Vegan Summit and Expo, her name again, which is uh, I'm embarrassed, it's escaping me right Amy now. Amy Bryant. Amy Bryant. Yes, yes. So she she wrote uh, you know a, a, a scathing commentary on what HSUS was doing at the time with that. So I, uh, in fact, I believe I read it on air. Uh, when when HSUS was doing that, that's pretty shocking. But it was about, I guess, maybe a year or two ago uh, when it was making those proposals in California. Well, I, you know, nothing really surprises me anymore. But what I'm saying is, I think in certain ways, that sort of thing would have been much harder had, had we continued on with the momentum that we had, that we were building in the you know in the first part of the '90s, from '90 90 to '95. Had we continued with that momentum. Um, I think um, we would have we'd be in a different a different place now. You know, on the other hand, maybe not. I mean, maybe the maybe the maybe the the welfareist interests because they they have enormous power behind them um, because they they really are the part they really are promoting industry. They're really the they're really the partners with industry. Um, you know, maybe it, it just was was a was unstoppable in that sense. Maybe the maybe the movement. Um, really was not was not going to be able to resist that i i don't know we'll never know but i just know that in the first part of the 90s things were very different um you know from 90 to 95 um it was really a very different situation and and you know the 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 uh, many animal advocates were um seeing that it was important to reject welfare reform and they were they were doing a lot of grassroots vegan advocacy and they were focusing on veganism so there was you know there was a it was um a, a, a really different time and and i i i'm sad i'm sad that you know that reagan and i parted ways um as a result of that that march and and you know what um uh, as I recall, I think the National Alliance for Animals, which doesn't exist anymore, but the National Alliance, I believe, was the main organizing force, and the people who were involved with that were um, very pro-welfareist, and um, and it was um, it was unfortunate, you know, and, and it was unfortunate. And but you know, on the other hand, I also understand, you know, I can understand that you know Tom just didn't really want to deal with being called every name in the book and being attacked by um, these um, moral eunuchs. 
but, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, it, it, the situation is what it is. There's really nothing we can do about it. We keep soldiering on and, um, you know, and uh, doing Talk our truth and uh, try to try to do the best we can for the animals by helping everyone go vegan as quickly as possible, as we've Indeed. as we've come to learn what what the cause is really, you know. So, uh, yeah, I was upset. I mean, back then, what what was I doing? I was uh, I was collecting signatures and uh, you know against steel leg hold traps, and then I find out, oh, now they'll use snares instead of you know. I mean, it, it was like. Oh, actually- Actually, Bob, it was worse than that. I remember because, you know, th- those were the days when I was like an animal welfare lawyer. When I first started off, I was an animal welfare lawyer. And I remember, I remember when they got the steel, bo- jaw, uh, uh, steel jaw leg hole trap ban in, in New Jersey. Do you remember that, Anna? And, and, and then, they, and then the, the, the trappers came up with using a padded leg. They didn't even, it wasn't even snares, Bob. It was using a leg hole trap, but they put a rubber yeah. <laughs> thing, on, thing on it. And I remember at the time, um, there was, a, there was a, a, you know, a, a challenge to that that I believe Friends of Animals in New yeah. Jersey brought when Alice Harrington was alive, and, and they brought a challenge to that. And I remember um, working on that and working on, you know, and, and again, you know, sort of sitting there trying to figure out why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I, tell me why I'm concerned about whether it's a leg hole trap or a padded leg hole trap. I, I don't understand that. And, 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 you know, and, and I, I, but I mean, again, as I say, you know, right from the beginning, I had my doubts. It, it, actually, my, my moment of truth came when, I was involved in a case with the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and we were arguing that um, that cows should not be face branded. They they should only be branded on their hindquarters, and if they're going to be branded on their face, it should be a freezing brand rather than a hot brand. Mm. And I remember we, we were having it was we, there was a we were having the argument with the judge, and we were all on con- there was a bunch of us on conference phones, and we were having the the oral argument with the court. I remember thinking, what am I doing? I'm actually having a discussion about whether you should brand right. that, that, you know, that, that really, you know, here's, here's you know, the revolution. It, yes, yes, please brand, please use a hot brand on the hindquarters. And if you're going to use a brand on their heads, use a freezing thing rather than a burning thing. And I remember thinking, this is bizarre. I mean, I'm having a, I'm, this is a, a bizarre moment in my life. And, and, you know, but I mean, again, I think a lot of it's, you know, a lot of those things were things I talked through with Tom. You know, those things would happen, and then I would call Reagan, and we would end up talking about them yeah. for hours. About, that, that, that was know. an awakening for me. I believe that uh, it was my friend Virginia Handley who mentioned that snares were being used that, uh, instead of the leg hole traps. And I worked hard on that campaign for the, uh, against steel leg hole traps. And I thought, I have to start thinking about the consequences of my actions. You know, I never imagined like, wow, it could get worse. If I advocate for something, the result could be equally bad or worse. You know, that was a big awakening well, Virginia, for me. Virginia, you know? Handley, Virginia Handley was with Front for Animals. So you were, you were, back. yeah, well, it's really taking me back because that was, she was out in California and I guess you had, I guess they were using snares rather than the padded leg hole trap in California. But Virginia Hanley was with Fun for Animals, was she not? I, yes, she was. She was uh, with yes, Fun for Animals many, many years prior to that. So I'm taking, yeah. I'm taking a, a walk down memory lane with you here, Bob. 
and um, yeah, Virginia Handley. Virginia and, Handley, and, uh, and, and my, you know, in, in my challenged, uh, financially challenged activist days of doing this radio show, Virginia Handley's office in San Francisco uh, was uh, home to me at times. <laughs> don't don't tell the federal government I stayed on the property there, but uh, I, I camped out in her in her office uh, for a while there. So. Yeah, well, you know, look, I mean, those were those were grand days, but but you know, I mean, see, in those days, I would have been arguing with you, Bob. You know, you really shouldn't be supporting those campaigns, and um, which is what I was arguing with welfareists back then, and you know, their response was to call me names. But um, so things have not really changed all that terribly much. But um, but you know, it was um, the years that that Reagan and I, you know, spent together, worked together, wrote things together. Um, you know, those were uh, those were grand grand times, and. Um, and I, uh, I uh, uh, still hold near and dear to my heart with, uh, the wonderful things that Tom said about animals, property, and the law, which was a book that you know took a lot of a lot of effort to write. And Tom was um, Tom thought it was a it was a great book. As a matter of fact, he told me that he thought that it was not nearly as good as the case for animal rights, but almost. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, it was. It, it, that was the ultimate compliment for Tom. But. Um, yeah. But anyway, so um, but anyway, well, thank you very much for having us. Okay, and, uh, rest in peace, Tom Reagan, and uh, rest in peace, Tom Reagan. Yeah, and uh, okay, uh, Daisy's giving me that look, of course, uh, which is our cue for uh, wrap it up and let's take a walk here. Uh, maybe she's checked the weather. You know, it's been raining here. You know, climate change. We've had a drought, and now it's floods. It's uh, just. Been yeah, raining. I've been I've been watching the weather out in California. It looks actually quite bad. Raining constantly, Be- beautiful rain, but uh, destructive at times. So, uh, but uh, we, you know, we're used to it. It's like when I used to live in Seattle. It was like, okay, it's always going to rain. We're just we're just used to it at this point. It's like, okay, it's raining again. So, uh, so we're going to go out and uh, in the drizzle. Well, you- you and Daisy, stay well and stay dry. We will. Okay. Well, thanks for being with us today, Gary and Anna. And we will talk to you again next week. Absolutely. See you then, Bob. Okay. Bye-bye. Talk to you then. Okay. And I want to thank you for listening and being with us today and uh, uh, supporting the program. So, oh, oh again, uh, that video is... Uh, the, the video is available on YouTube if you look at everything wrong with animal rights. And again, uh, we're looking for founding sponsors for Radio Bobby uh, to run your advertising for vegan products. I hope to launch Radio Bobby on March 4th. If I keep saying it, maybe it'll come true. And you can, oh, and we, uh, you can support us at, uh, what is it, Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Bob Linden. Or find the donate button at goveganradio.com where hundreds of shows are archived, uh, including the interview with Tom Reagan, September 24th, 2006. And thank you for listening. And if you aren't yet, please go vegan.